Welcome to episode one of Stories, Stories Everywhere. This, my friend, is the best time of the day because it's story time. And you've come to the right place for a great story. I just want to thank you for spending some time here. Come on in and enjoy the story coming your way. This first story, the inaugural story of this podcast, if you will, is called The Oil Change. No, it's not about heading down to Jiffy Lube for your 3,000-mile oil change, though there might be an interesting story somewhere in that. No, this story is about ordinary people battling a part of life that some of us experience now and most of us will encounter in the future. Cancer. That word alone is enough to turn you away and turn you off. I get it. It's depressing. But stay and listen on, friend. Maybe this story will surprise you. Maybe in it, you'll find something to cling to now or something to hope for when there is no hope. For cancer, my friend, will find us all, whether it comes to us personally or to someone we love. We'll be changed by it, challenged by it, maybe even consumed by it. But in that battle, that journey, there is a story that might help us remember why we keep fighting. The oil change will come to you in five episodes. In this first episode, we'll dive into the world of Ernest Silverstein. He's got dementia, and he can't remember what he had for breakfast. But Ernest Silverstein can clearly remember the flower man. The flower man who annoyed Ernest, infuriated him, and whose kindness made Ernest want to puke. The flower man who changed how Ernest would fight his battle with cancer. Chapter 1 In Ernest Silverstein's 74th year of life on this world, he was more than anything perplexed. Utterly confused, if you will. The bowl set before him by his son Isaac was enticing enough, filled with red sauce, red beans, and browned ground beef. As a matter of fact, it smelled downright delicious. The thing was, he couldn't for the life of him remember what the stuff was called. Ernest ate a few spoonfuls of it in silence, trying to dig into the dusty recesses of his brain and pull out the name of his dinner. Isaac asked, how's dinner, Dad? He was sprinkling some shredded yellow cheese in his bowl, so the old man did the same. Fine, son, fine. Ernest was mumbling as he said this, which Isaac hated. But Ernest was trying hard to think, not talk. Isaac asked, What's wrong with it? Is it too spicy? The old man looked up apologetically. No, it's good. Some of the best I've ever had, come to think of it. But Isaac didn't buy it. So what's the problem? You look totally confused. Ernest put his spoon down and looked right at Isaac, who was in his 40s now, his blonde hair already thin and gray, thick spectacles perched on his nose, just like the old man. But now... Ernest only saw the 20-year-old son, in college no less, with a head full of blonde hair and a new mustache. All he saw before him was a wonderful young kid. Did you hear me, Dad? Isaac's tone was urgent or angry. The old man wasn't sure which. 
I heard you, Isaac, Ernest said, tapping the bowl with his finger. I was just trying to remember what this stuff is called. Are you serious, Dad? Now Ernest was pretty sure his son was angry. That's chilly, Dad. Chilly. You've only had it a thousand times. Ernest nodded thoughtfully, and then he said, Chilly. Okay, it's chilly. And then he proceeded to look out the window. Isaac, too, looked out the window and said, Sometimes, Dad, I don't know what we're going to do with you. You seem to be getting worse every day. Ernest said, My brains, it's just my brains. They're not working like they used to, that's all. He worried that the stuttering and the stumbling over these words, something that was happening much too often, would probably make Isaac mad. The words just didn't flow as freely as they used to, especially when there was a little stress thrown into the mix. Ernest shrugged and kept looking out the window, fixed now on a black bird clinging to the topmost branch of the aspen tree he had planted out there so long ago. It had been a gift for Isaac and his wife, whose name escaped him, when they had first bought this place. Ernest suddenly realized that that blackbird was a crow. Isaac stood and cleared their bowls from the table. You're killing me, Dad. I don't know what we're going to do with you. Ernest had not forgotten how to be defensive, and he said, Maybe you should just put me in one of those places for old people. Isaac came back to the table and put his hand on Ernest's shoulder. His tone was now soft and soothing. A nursing home. Not in a million years, Isaac said. Karen and I would never have that. You belong here. He put his face directly in Ernest's line of sight and smiled. The old man still looked confused, so Isaac continued. Mom would come down from heaven and strike me dead if I put you in a home. Besides, good memory care is what you need, and those places cost five grand a month. Your cop's pension ain't gonna cover that. Ernest's mouth dropped open in amazement as it sunk in that once, once he had been a cop. He leaned in close to Isaac and said, did I ever tell you about that night at the old DNR tavern? Only a million times, Isaac said softly, surprised that he'd said that out loud. Isaac went back to the sink to do the dishes, shaking his head, and Ernest went on to tell his story. He and several other patrolmen, whose names were lost to dementia, were called into a fight in progress down at the old Duck and Run Tavern, as they called it. That place was a dank, dark hellhole, always filled with the same crew of drunks. Ernest and the other patrolmen went about the business of breaking up this supposed fight. It was just drunk old men pushing each other, throwing a few weak, slow-motion roundhouse punches, lots of cussing. They were drunk as skunks, all of them. Eventually, the patrolmen got those hooligans lined up against the wall, hands above their heads, waiting their turn to be frisked. Ernest was completely alive back in that time again, in that place. He continued the story, telling Isaac about frisking these bozos, and then one of them, God, what was his name? Ernest couldn't remember. One of them reached up to his face, pulled out his fake eyeball, and threw it at Ernest. In the heat of the moment, Ernest said, that son of a bitch had a fake eyeball, see, and he threw it right at me. 
Isaac frowned and said, Watch your language, Pop. Mom's turning over in her grave. Ernest dismissed him with a wave of his hand and kept going. So I says to this guy, What the hell are you doing? And he says, I got nothing else to throw at you, asshole. Now Isaac was irritated and said, Language, Pop. Ernest replied, Okay, okay. So anyway, I said to this guy, Pick up your eyeball now. And the guy does. He flips me off, picks up his fake eyeball, spits on it, and pops it right back in his eye socket. Ernest roared out a laugh. I've seen a lot of things, my son, but this, this was one of the funniest ever. He stopped laughing and shook his head. People are downright bizarre. As that memory faded, consumed again by the dementia, Ernest was glad he'd gotten the chance to tell his Isaac that story. Isaac needed to know some of the things he did earlier in life when he was young and strong. Maybe Isaac would remember these things when Ernest couldn't. Isaac turned from his dishes to see his father sitting at the table, a blank stare consuming him. Why don't you go sit in the living room there and watch your game shows, Pop? Karen will be back from work in a half hour. The old man nodded, took up his station on the couch, and watched Family Feud. This, too, perplexed him, brought on downright confusion. You see, he couldn't really understand the questions. They were rattling them off so quickly, Ernest couldn't get a hold of them in his dying brain so that maybe he could think of an answer. Hence the reason that he settled for laughing every time the host laughed. What was his name? Uh, Harvey, something Harvey. What did it matter? The host laughed, Ernest laughed. Isaac came and sat next to his father, who now saw only the 40-something Isaac, not the 20-something one. You having a good time, Pop? The old man shrugged, I guess. You're laughing up a storm. Can't get enough of that Steve Harvey, huh? Ernest's eyes lit up. Steve Harvey, yes, that's it. Isaac gave him a puzzled stare. Then Ernest sat up straight, looked urgently at his son and said, I just remembered a story I need to tell you before I forget it completely, like so many other things. Did I ever tell you about that night down at the old DNR tavern? Only a million times, Isaac said, and then, say there, Dad, tell me another one. Do you remember the flower man? Ernest's eyes came alive again. Do I remember the flower man? Of course I do. Ernest told his Isaac pieces of the story what came to him through the dust and the haze in his mind, but it was incomplete, just flashes of what he could now remember. It wasn't until later that Ernest really remembered it. He lay awake in bed, his eyes closed but not sleeping, and he remembered everything. Ernest had been the flower man by God, and oh, what a glorious thing that had been. Here I was again, sitting in the waiting room in the last row with my back against the wall. I looked out over the rows of chairs occupied here and there by the assortment of people who were forced to be in this godforsaken place, and it occurred to me then that this was okay. This waiting, this being here in the cancer wellness center, this diagnosis of pain I had been given, 
It was okay. As it should be. My time was up, that's all. My number was called. It was my turn. The worrying and wondering about if I'd get cancer from eating this or drinking that or breathing in this or being exposed to that was over. Thank God and hallelujah. Now I had the answer. I knew. The thing that brought me grief, though, was that this terrible answer had come too soon. I was only 63. Bottom line was I always thought getting cancer was down the road, way down the road. And I just never wanted to truly, deeply think about what would happen when it came. I didn't think through the mundane things of having cancer, like the fact that going to these treatments could last so long. Today was six months. Every few minutes, a nurse came out of the door at the far end of the room and called out a name. Dana, Floyd, Mary, John, an endless parade of victims. And each time a man or a woman would rise, sometimes followed by a dutiful spouse or friend, and slowly walk towards the open door and the smiling nurse. No one was in a hurry, that's for sure. All of them were bathed in worry. All were in some kind of pain. Somewhere at the tail end of their journey, frail, skeletal, confused, mostly resigned to their fate. They simply nodded to the nurse as she asked them how they were doing and led them through the door. Some were just beginning their journey and would nervously glance around the room and smile at the others and make small talk with the nurse. They were still believers and thought they still had a chance. Me, I was kind of in no man's land. I was sick enough to feel it, to know every day by the nausea and the cramps and the pain and the diarrhea that I had cancer. But I still had a little hope. Shoot, it was six months now and I was still here. This place, though, was steadily wearing me down. And these people, once so beautiful, were taking my hope. Especially the skeletal people. I could plainly see where I was headed when they came in in their wheelchairs or scraping along with their walkers, or if they were lucky, just leaning on a wife or a husband, slowly, painfully making their way through that door. This was not going to end well. Then, as if things couldn't get any worse, the flower man walked in, same as he did so many other times on my forced visits to this place. He was an extraordinarily tall, older man painfully thin, dressed in a dated, coffee-colored three-piece suit, the wide lapels and tie fashionable 20 or more years ago. The matching coffee-colored fedora he wore had a nice set of green and blue feathers in the hatband. Those feathers were just long enough to catch the light now and then, drawing your eyes to them, to that awful hat, that horrible suit. God, that guy was a piece of work. But of course, I continued to watch him as I always did. There was nothing better to do. He was getting ready to do his thing, brushing his suit jacket with his free hand, clearing his throat, putting on that patronizing smile of his. I snorted out a laugh. He was so predictable, so impossibly annoying. First, he stopped at the counter to talk with the receptionists, smiling and asking each lady in turn how they were doing. He held two huge bouquets of daisies in his oversized bony hand, artificially colored daisies, 
They had been colored to be the brightest reds and yellows and purples imaginable. It was exactly what God did not have in mind when he created flowers. It was a show, nothing more. As he ceremoniously plucked a daisy out and gave it to each one of the receptionists, they in turn gave him gracious smiles and demurely thanked him. Then he made his way to the waiting room and proceeded to give each person sitting there one of those oh-so-beautiful, artificially-colored daisies. It was disgusting to see the smiles and the joy spread across that place. Disgusting because he was giving these people false hope, temporary happiness. Then it was my turn to get one of those daisies. No thanks. I put up my hand for emphasis. No worries, sir. Have a blessed day. He smiled and moved on to the next person. The audacity of that man. There certainly wasn't anything blessed about any of this. Even after six months, I still didn't buy into things like free flowers or the crocheted afghan somebody had donated for the poor cancer patients. Those things made them feel good, but they did nothing for me. Those things wouldn't take away my cancer. Ernest, the nurse called, sugar sweet, cheerful. I got up and went to the door on my own, no help from anyone. Not that my wife and son didn't want to help me. They often asked to come with me, and I often told them no. I wasn't one of the skeletal people yet. How are we doing today? She was new to me, this one, young, probably her first nursing job. We're fine. I walked straight past her smile through the door. She followed me down a short hallway to the infusion suite, a large room with 20 or so recliners lining the walls facing the nurse's station in the center. There were low pony walls on the sides of each recliner, creating a little room complete with an end table and a cute little lamp. It was a nice try to create a homey feel, but it was just an illusion. The IV tree standing next to each recliner and the nurses wearing rubber gloves and carting in the terrible tools of their trades belied what this place truly was. I found an empty recliner, sat down, and stoically waited while this new-to-me nurse took my vitals and continued to make small talk, to which I responded with a nod or a grunt or nothing. Can I get you anything while you wait, sir? Nope, it's just another oil change. She gave me a curt little smile, obviously perplexed by my comment, obviously not knowing the deep meaning it carried with me. She waited a few seconds for an explanation, got none, and then left. My sister went through years of treatment for her cancer, and every time she went in, she would text me the same comment. Hey, brother, going in for another oil change. I'd always text back something like, good to go for another 3,000 miles. And she'd always text back a smiley face. It went on that way until she died. So now that it was my turn, I always made sure to do two things on my treatment days. One, I'd text my wife, time for an oil change, and she'd text right back, good to go for another 3,000 miles. And I'd text back a smiley face. Two, I'd make sure to drop the oil change comment on the nurse just to see her reaction, or maybe just to have the joy of saying it out loud. And today, 
It was just this little nurse's turn. Eventually, she came back to my recliner, got my IV started, plugged the bag of chemo in, and left with another smile, leaving me to my thoughts. This chemo, this medicine, was supposed to help put my cancer into remission. And I suppose it was doing just that, given that I was still around six months later. But they really weren't fooling me. I knew exactly what this medicine was. Poison. It made me nauseous. It took away my appetite, my will to do anything except sleep. Poison. It was killing the cancer, sure, and also killing a lot of other things in my body. Worst of all, it was killing my spirit. It was wearing me down. Poison. Anyway, an hour later, I was out the door, headed home for a long sleep, for the recovery that would hopefully come. Thanks for listening to episode one of The Oil Change. I hope you're liking it so far and that you'll listen to the next episode to see how becoming the flower man changes Ernest Silverstein's life in ways that he could never imagine.